This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls of the ABA Journal. And today I'm here with Andrew Guthrie Ferguson and Jonathan Yusuf Newton to talk about their book, The Law of Law School, The Essential Guide for First-Year Law Students. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. So first off, I want to talk about how you two met and the relationship between you guys. Andrew, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I am a law professor who has the wonderful job of getting to teach law students every year. And I was uh, fortunate enough to have uh, Jonathan Newton as one of my favorite law students in the world. And we independently came up with a recognition that there were things that were missing in the law school curriculum and the 1L curriculum of how people enter law school. And so uh, we decided to partner on a book. So uh, Jonathan is now a wonderfully talented lawyer and private practice uh, in Maryland, but at one moment in time in his life, he was a terrific law student in my class. And Jonathan, you had a non-traditional path to law school. Do you want to talk a little bit about your background and how you came to decide you wanted to go to law school? Yeah, sure. I blew, well, essentially, I went through a a process where I was uh, a criminal defendant after blowing the whistle on a sheriff and sort of uh, was retaliated against. And uh, once all of the uh, uh, criminal charges were dropped. Um, I applied and went to law school. I decided I wanted to go to law school in the middle of that process. It was my first exposure. I'm a former police officer. It was my first exposure to the criminal justice system in terms of being a participant uh, on the defense side as a defendant. And that's what brought me to law school. After I got involved with my own process, it really piqued my interest and um, started uh, pursuing the idea of going to law school. And it was around 2000. Uh, 11 that my process started, 2013 that my process was over, and uh, 2014 I was sitting in law school. So Andrew, you said you and Jonathan really came to this idea together that there was a lack of a real roadmap. And you said something interesting. Both your parents were attorneys and both my parents are attorneys. And I do think that I had a leg up when it came to secondary education because I understood, oh, if I have a problem with X, I can go to why place to look for it. And I've been given a lot of advice from my parents and the systems that work in academia had been explained to me. But what are some of the ways you see this system being totally opaque to people new to law school or what it means to go to law school? Law school is a completely different sort of educational experience. And I think I I really realized that when the same thing kept happening to me every spring. So at the beginning of the spring semester, I'd be sitting at my desk and there'd be a knock on the door. And right there would be a student I had taught in the fall who was usually in tears. And they were in tears because they had not done as well as they thought they could do in the fall of their 1-0 year. And we'd have the conversation. It was honestly a conversation I've had so many times over and over again where the student would finally have recognized that there was this thing that they had to do, 
but all during one all year, they sort of had missed, you know, I call it like getting the memo. They just didn't get the memo about what the ask of law school was going to be, what the rhythms of law school is going to be, what the frustrations of that first year of law school are going to be. And they had actually realized at that moment what the, the, the task was, what the trick was, what, the, what they should have learned, but it was too late. And so we'd have these like heartbreaking conversations. And I realized, I reflected, I was like, so why did I not have that experience? Why didn't I not have that uh, sort of sense of being able to, uh, you know, feeling lost? And part of it was, you know, I am a, a child of privilege. I had two lawyers uh, as parents. And I sort of had gotten the memo. I'm not sure where I got it from, but I had gotten it. And so in the sort of moments of reflection of trying to figure out how do we change that for other people, I learned about this wonderful then current law student, Jonathan Newton, and everyone knew Jonathan Newton. Jonathan Newton was <laughs> a star in the law school beforehand. He started an organization commenting police brutality one all year. He was a complete leader. But at that moment, he was doing something else. He was trying to teach the other uh, younger law students the lessons that he had missed. Because he, too, had struggled in the same way. He didn't come to my office in tears, but he had struggled in the same way. And he sort of missed the memo of there really is a law of law school. There are these hidden rules that some people know and some people don't. There, there's a rhythm to the law, uh, a semester that needs to be understood. And there's a particular ask that's not clear at the outset because of the way we teach law. law. And so together, we had this conversation where we both realized we were trying to do the same thing. And then we thought maybe we should write a book about it. And Jonathan, what was your biggest learning curve and what was the number one thing you found yourself trying to talk about with your peer-to-peer coaching? Well, the number one thing that, that we experienced and I experienced was is this, this expectation of what we thought law school was going to be like and what it really was like. And so for most people coming from my, my background, first off, my background is completely fundamentally different from both of your, your backgrounds. I did not have uh, parents who attended law school. I had a father who was uh, incarcerated from the time I was five until the time I was 12, uh, nine, and then he went back again when I was 12, and he didn't get back out again until I was 18. But he, I will say this, uh, you know, he was astute in the law to the extent that he was a, a jailhouse lawyer, and so he knew more law than I did my first year. But in terms of what we struggled with, it was when you come to law school, we're interpreting the word, you know, the, the, the phrase law school as regular students do. Law school, someone's going to hop up at the board and, you know, start teaching us the law and we're going to just learn what they have to teach us. And, and it was in that, you know, environment that you're sitting there waiting for that to happen. And, of course, that semester kind of just zooms by and it never really happened. And then... For some of us, you know, I, 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 at the end of every semester I made, even at the end of like midterms, I would just sit and reflect on what is it that I really was supposed to get out of that. And so when I finally figured it out, I started, you know, talking with some of my peers. And, and I think that we had all sort of missed what we were supposed to, supposed to be getting because we had an expectation of what school, quote unquote, was like. And so law school, we were expecting something that, that really didn't take place. And so by the time... We figured that out. It dawned on us. They're really teaching us to think about the law as opposed to teaching us the law. And a lot about law school is learning how to structure your time, learning the structure that classes have. And so I want to ask about the structure of this book. I found it really interesting. You have 100 laws, which is a a nice round number, but you break it up into different sections. Does one of you feel more ready to talk about why you structured the book the way you did? 
Sure. I mean, so the reason for writing the book was to sort of give a framework so that you can see what is to be expected of you. Part of what, you know, is the frustration of most 1Ls is you don't know what's coming. And it keeps coming pretty quickly, right? So to sort of see the structure as it goes forward from like what it's like to be in a class, which is different from most undergrad classes, to outlining, to midterms, to finals, to preparing for finals, to getting your mind right about that is all something that you need to see before you begin. And part of the reason for writing this book is so that you would have the rules and really the framework of expectations before you begin. Because people who can see that, can know what's coming down the road, will do much better. So, you know, the the 100 rules are things like, you know, getting your mind right, planning to plan, uh, books and reading and briefing cases, uh, the habits of success, confidence, outlines, how you have to think about this is all about application, about what you do with the material, not just learning the material. And the reason for writing the book as we did was, The one thing we know is that all law students have too much reading and too much stress. And so we didn't want to add to that by writing a complicated, dense book that would only make those realities worse. Instead, we figured we'd write a really basic rules. Each is one rule on a page, the 100 rules. They're broken down, kind of you can go back over in time when the the appropriate thing comes up, like, wait a minute, how do I outline? Wait a minute, what are midterms? Uh, And you can go back and it's a quick read uh, to sort of give you the sense of like, these are the basic rules, expectations, and really the asks, the thing that you're going to be asked at the end of the semester uh, that you got to know at the beginning of the semester so you can structure your whole way of studying. Just to give people who are listening kind of an idea of the structure of this, I'd like for us to hear one of your your rules. And Jonathan, you said that there's one that's your particular favorite. Would you mind reading that for us? So my my favorite rule is uh, 41. I, I really have two. It's 41 and 42. I mean, I'll just read it. But before any challenge in law school, you need to deal with mental impediments to success. All the negative thoughts, most of the fear, and every self-doubting echo in your head must be silenced before you can move on to your activity. Self-doubt leads to self-sabotage, and many great students stop themselves before they can begin. In writing this book, we asked lots of lawyers how they experienced the first weeks of law school. All said they had no idea what they were doing. Top students, brilliant lawyers, and some of the most truly impressive people all agreed that 1L year is baffling, humbling, and not easy. Remember, no one comes to law school fully prepared. Even your most confident classmates have no idea what they're doing. They are bluffing, but they have the right minds. They have their minds right, so get yours right, too. And, of course, I got that get your mind right from Cool Hand Luke, that phrase in that movie. But it really does you know, speak to what, what you need to do. There's a lot of things, that, particularly marginalized and students uh, that come from marginalized communities, and in certain situations, they ha- you're dealing with things that will cause you to sort of self-sabotage yourself. And if you don't really address that before you go, know that you, you, you need, you know, you're supposed to be there. It, it sort of dovetails into the very next rule on page 42, you belong in law school. I spoke with several students that were saying, you know, I don't know if I should be here. I kind of feel like, you know, they let me come. And, you know, I said, no, you earned your seat in law school. These are very, very valuable seats. And so... Rule 41 and 42 should be read together almost. Well, and I like rule 70, which is to be a world-changing lawyer, you have to become a lawyer first. And I think a lot of people start out law school with these big dreams and become so daunted by this three-year 
academic boot camp that it can be easy to to lose track of that. Uh, Andrew, what have you seen with students who are successful about being able to to jump that hurdle and get to the becoming a lawyer part where you can now go on to do the things you dreamed about? Well, you know, the funny thing is that most students, as they finish their three years, figure out the law of law school. The frustrating thing is that the learning curve for lots of students is just too long. And a lot of important things happen in that first year. Not only is it sort of like forming you as a lawyer and getting you to think like a lawyer, but there are also some, you know, issues with like if you do well, certain doors open, including like law review, if you have grade ons or clerkships or those kinds of things. So, you know, part of the reason for writing the book was to give everyone a fair shake. Do everyone have the same advantages that everyone else has who sort of had that inside knowledge and track? So, you know, this is what I think is interesting. Lawyers, if you read this book, you'll probably be like, well, you know, I know this stuff. But if you remember what it's like when you started in law school, right, and you get those books and you open them up to a new subject you've never seen before, and there you're being taught in these kind of snippets of cases, some of them written centuries ago, and you're saying, okay, here is what you're going to know about a particular subject. Next class, we'll probably go into another subject and then another subject. And you, you read this and you're like, these are just excerpts of, you know, judges talking to litigants. They're not talking to me. I'm a student. This isn't written for, you know, to teach what the law actually is. It's basically solving a legal problem. And these words, this language is really off-putting and old-fashioned and difficult. And this issue of, you know, the, the choices of, of Latin phrase, and all these things are sort of making people doubt that they belong. That's kind of what Jonathan was talking about, the fact that, you know, people come in and they're sort of put off by, you know, the language and the, the, the way it's structured and the way it's taught, uh, and they start doubting themselves, not recognize that everyone's going through that same process. And so the reason for writing the book is so that everyone uh, succeeds in that first year and then they can graduate and go be great lawyers. Then they can go change the world. And they'll do so with a confidence they might not have had if they spent the whole first semester doubting themselves that they didn't belong or didn't understand, when the truth is, most people feel that way. So, Jonathan, do you see this as an issue that happens in you know something that I know the ABA Journal we're always looking at, the ABA itself always wonders about? We talk a lot about diversity in the law, but it doesn't start with just getting students in the doors at law school. Um, without support, you know, how do you how do you get through law school and then launch a successful and fulfilling career? Are you writing this book partially to hopefully help others deal with that? That is exactly what my my purpose was. I just thought about the people who were similarly situated to myself, uh, who had not been exposed to law school or even the legal industry from 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 the standpoint of becoming a lawyer and that's that's why you know I got involved with this with Andrew and we you know for me I see this as sort of a way to allow students uh, who have come from backgrounds that are challenging backgrounds to understand not only that they belong but that they can actually thrive in this environment if they adopt sort of the same mentality that they've adopted to get through some of the challenges that they are going through, that they have been through. When you really look at, you know, diversifying the bar, we're going to have to meet people where they're at. And, you know, one of the things that Andrew just talked about, which is, you know, case books, although they, you, we do have to learn how to read uh, very dense 
cases, that's not, you know, that that's that's not where you should start. Now, I always used to say it's like, you know, you're taking somebody and you're showing them how to swim, but you're throwing them into the deep end of the pool. And they'll some will struggle and actually learn how to swim. Some will actually drown and some will be resuscitated. But that's what we've you've sort of done. And there needs to be a real fundamental look at how we how we teach in law school. This book is really meant to make it sort of simple for you to say, hey, this is what you can do to make that that process of learning easier with with a lot of students that uh, that come from similarly situated backgrounds as mine. You, you don't have that support mechanism. And you're also some students are dealing with somewhat embarrassment of going to ask for help. That's that's and that's one of those self-defeating mindsets, self-sabotaging mindsets that I said, you know, you have to deal with. One of the fundamental things that students need to understand is when they're invite when the, when they're asked to come to law school, when they are given, you know, not given, but when they've earned a seat at law school, you're taking a seat to become an advocate for somebody else. And in that process, the very first person that you need to learn to advocate for is yourself and knowing when you need help is part of that process. Andrew, you said that this is a, a very simple book, but I can say as a reader, it was, you know, I finished it in an evening, but the rules themselves, you know, honestly, I feel like this is a book that you could pick up, flip to any page. You know, you guys very deliberately structured this, but there's also a way to interact with this book where you just open it to any page, read the rule, and there's some stuff to reflect on. And then there are some that just, you know, that's just solid advice, like that law librarians are wizards. That's just the truth. But it's true, right? And students don't know that. It takes a long time to realize that, you know, in a profession where you're tasked to answer unanswered questions, right? If there's already an answer, no one's going to a lawyer. So your job is to figure out what is the next answer. And then you learn that there's an entire profession of lawyer professional librarians who sit in a law library filled with all of the answers and you don't go ask them? It seems foolish, but most law students don't. They don't realize the resource of law librarians. They don't realize the work and the power of the academic success uh, professionals who are in a law school. They don't even necessarily realize sort of the culture that is created, right? This isn't an accidental culture of law school. It's actually very intentionally created. Some good things, some bad things, but it's not an accident. And you need to sort of study it to understand your own law school's uh, culture, where are the resources, where are the places to go get help. And most students are are kind of, you know, waiting for it to come to them rather than sort of seeking it out themselves. And that mistake is really the mistake of legal learning. Like legal learning is not about a law professor getting up there and telling you the answer. It's you engaging with the material that you've been assigned and coming to law school to figure out the next question, the what if, the what then, but what if this happens, right? And that's the skill you're learning in law school, but it's not always taught. And it's not always uh, inferred until, you know, you've done it for a while. And so the goal of this book is to basically deconstruct that, reveal it, demystify the process so that um, students can start on the ground running into this already difficult process of learning the law. And we are speaking to each other on May 1st, 2020, each from our separate locations, sheltering in place. It must be a little strange to have this book come out just as law schools across the country and the world are really thrown into a situation that none of us have experienced before or were prepared for. I have kind of a two-part question here. One is, are there any rules in the books that you think would particularly help current law students deal with life as a law student during the coronavirus pandemic? And second, 
now that we're in this pandemic, are there rules that you would come up with now that aren't in the book, but seem to apply to our, our time? Jonathan, I'll ask you and then, then Andrew. So rules during the pandemic for uh, current law students is, you know, there's, there's, there's the rule of, you know, it starts a whole series of but self-care and that help is here. I really have a heart for those that are going through law school right now because obviously you're part of law school. People are like, oh, we should do law school online. No, we actually shouldn't. Part of law school is, is the camaraderie that you experience with your peers inside classrooms throughout the school. And it's just being able to go through that process together. It is the face-to-face, you know, sort of experiences that you have with professors inside classrooms that are, that are set up to sort of be like an appellate court scenario or even a, a, a briefing. But self-care and, 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 and really reaching out to people while you're quarantined or while you're, you're isolated, I think is very important to try to keep up dialogues. And with the technology that we have now, with some of the, the platforms that are available, you know, Getting off, you know, 40 or 50 of your, your, your class cohort together and actually getting online just to, you know, let's talk through some of these things. And if a professor is willing to, I don't know how some are dealing with it, but, you know, I would say that if I had to write a, another rule that was going to, uh, you know, be put into the book, if, if this was going to be a new paradigm, it, it would be, you know, hey, this is this is how you do online classes and this is what you, you should be doing to sort of and keep the uh, keep the momentum going so that you don't feel isolated because, uh, law school by itself, even in the traditional setting, is an isolating, uh, you know, an isolating experience somewhat. I would try to write a, a rule around that. Andrew, if you can identify one that, 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 you know, would be beneficial to students right now. I think uh, that, you know, what Jonathan talks about as, you know, the, the concerns of isolation are real. I mean, law school itself in the traditional way is a collective experience that's still pretty isolating. And yet the folks who succeed are the ones who sort of find the hidden clues. I can't tell you how many times when I was in law school, you know, there would be an upperclassman who would say, hey, you know, you really should check out like this horn book or this outline or you, oh, you have this professor, you really need to know this. And, you know, it was a sort of hidden sort of uh, helping suggestions that was the unwritten support network of law school. And when you are isolated via you know, everyone sheltering in place at home, you don't have that. And so I think it's actually probably even more important to have kind of a structure like our book to sort of guide you about this is what's coming up. This is what you need to think about. This is what the challenges are. Here's how you have to think about the problem of what's going on uh, and to understand it. You know, part of the process of this book for me was trying to think about and deconstruct what am I doing as a law professor? What, What am I trying to get out? And where are the moments where, you know, we're hiding the ball as law professors. Socratic method is a complete like hide the ball kind of approach, right? You're not even telling students necessarily what the answer is or when there's an answer. I mean, it can be done well, and I use a quasi-Socratic method myself. But in terms of exams, right, we don't necessarily reveal like what the ask will be for students. So, you know, I can't tell you how many students have come to my office and said, wait, you know, like every day in class, you asked us about the cases and the issues and the rules, and your exam was nothing like that. In fact, it was like some crazy hypothetical about some different problems. Problem and you wanted us to answer that. Uh, why didn't you teach us that way? Which is a perfectly legitimate and logical uh, critique. And so, you know, the book is 
trying to give you that structure. And so I think that however law school develops in the future, be it, you know, in person, online, some combination, the same kind of trying to figure out what are we trying to get across? How are we trying to do it in a way that doesn't hide the ball is really important. And this book is just one, you know, attempt at trying to reveal the game that is law school and realize that there are rules and there are rules you can use to win the game. I'm also curious about what your daily life is like now as we're all in quarantine. Jonathan, you're a, you're a sole practitioner. How do you spend your day? Well, now, um, in the morning time, I I come in and I, I do reading. I, I take advantage of, of the slower period of business to actually work on my business processes. Also, as a new practitioner, the, the next book that's going to be written is going to be what they don't teach you in law school. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> You know, just there's still a learning curve to actually being a practicing attorney in law school. You know, it prepares you to sort of think like a lawyer, but it doesn't teach you to 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 act and practice like a lawyer. And so for me now, I come in, you know, I, I sit down. I, of course, I look at my docket every day. A lot of that's being postponed over here in Maryland. The courts are closed. But what I do is as I look for every area of practice or every uh, particular uh, case that I have, I'm looking for novel issues that I can find uh, in the fact set to actually make uh, arguments on behalf of my clients. And sometimes, uh, a lot of times, you see the same thing over and over again. But if you really pause and, and, and slow down and, 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 and read a fact set or uh, a statement from somebody, you can catch little gems. And that's, that's what I try to do now while I'm slow. It's just pouring back over, you know, statements of my witnesses or statements of my clients to be able to see if I can if I can spot something that will give me a, an edge up in the courtroom. But I wanted to go back to one thing that you said earlier about law librarians are wizards. And and that, you know, I, I hope that there's some law student out here who's listening to, to, to us because that rule was also one of my favorites. And it, it speaks to sort of like how, you know, when we talk about under undergraduate study skills must die coming over from undergraduate school you're used to libraries that are sort of like you go in and you engage a computer and you find what you want you get it and you go check out and if you do that at law school you are really missing the value of, of of law librarians not only do they know where the books are they know where the best books are they know subject areas that uh you know, they've seen some of this stuff over and over and over again. And, you know, if you drag that sort of mentality over uh, that you experienced a, li a library at your undergraduate school and you, you sort of use it the same way that you do at law school, you're really, really sort of changing yourself. And so I, I hope that uh, folks pay attention to that particular rule, Rule 60. That is excellent advice. And Andrew, I imagine uh, I have a friend who's, who's in law school currently and she's in, I think, the third week of finals. What is it like for you on a daily basis as a, as a law professor? So since spring break, we have uh, transitioned over to online teaching. So our class times were the same, but we were doing it via Zoom. I have to say, I have just been incredibly impressed by the students whose sort of resiliency and sort of strength and commitment has not changed. Just wonderful study. Everyone's prepared. The world of online teaching is just not nearly as as rich as teaching in a class where you can sort of read the room and generate uh, debates and sort of understand. And really, there's an energy to it that I think is missing. But the substance got uh, conveyed and, and we got through it. 
exams are happening uh, as of uh, a couple days ago. They've started, so Sue and I will just be grading exams. And then, you know, we're just going to pray that we get to start in person in the fall because I really think there's a value to the the community that a law school creates and an educational experience for law students being in uh, in classes taught the way we've been teaching it. And we've been talking about the subject of law school, but the subjects you teach in law school, I, I kind of want to return to. You and I spoke in an earlier episode of the Modern Law Library, which we'll link online at abajournal.com, about a previous book. And I want to take a break to hear a word from our sponsor, but when we return, We'll talk to Andrew Guthrie Ferguson about one of his other books, The Rise of Big Data Policing. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system, their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and I'm here with Andrew Guthrie Ferguson and Jonathan Yusuf Newton to talk about their book, The Law of Law School. But Andrew, I want to return to one of your earlier books, The Rise of Big Data Policing, because as I read stories about the coronavirus and tracking apps that we may use to find out whether or not you've been in contact with someone who has the virus, I really have been thinking back to our conversations about the way police will use apps and, and data and data collection and both the, the promise and the dangers there. Is there anything that you think people should be paying attention to, particularly during this time? Oh, yes. I mean, so, you know, two things have happened uh, since the release of the Rise of Big Data Policing. One is that many of the technologies that were sort of talked about as pilot programs are now in operation. We've seen new technologies, facial recognition, uh, other kinds of sensor surveillance and, uh, you know, iPhone app uh, surveillance that has just revealed our digital trails like no other. But we're also seeing, you know, a public health emergency. And one of the changes that has happened is that in the midst of this public health emergency, people want solutions. And it makes perfect sense. I want a solution. Everyone wants a solution, right? But the idea that surveillance will be that solution is something that is, I think, needs is contested and needs to be interrogated pretty seriously, in part because you're seeing, in some ways, kind of a cynical gold rush of companies sort of repurposing software and technologies that would not be allowed in a, a, a non-pandemic, non-public health emergency world that are now being sold to police. Drones are an example, right? If you had a year ago said, we're going to fly drones in public parks to monitor individuals taking walks there. It, there would be outrage and people would say no. And now we're starting to see pilot programs of doing just that, sold to police, not even sold to public health officials, but sold to police. Uh, we're seeing the same companies that were literally the you know butt of international outrage for facial recognition technologies like Clearview AI, who are now in talks with the government to try to do some kind of facial recognition to heat sensors of people who might be involved, might have the virus. And like, most of it is untested. A lot of it is completely not what it's being promised. And yet, because we're in a crisis, people want to be able to say that 
they did something. And we're starting to see more and more people jump at something, even if it's a dangerous surveillance something that probably shouldn't go forward. And Jonathan, I'd love to hear from you as a former police officer. What do you really see as the challenges both for law enforcement and for people encountering law enforcement? I know in Illinois, there's been concern about we have a masking law, but so many minorities are viewed with suspicion already, and they're concerned that wearing masks could put them potentially in in more danger. So I'm just curious, as a former police officer and now attorney, what are your big concerns? The same as have always been in terms of, you know, communities of color and marginalized communities being over-policed, over-observed. And during this pandemic, essentially everybody's in a heightened sense of, of, of awareness and, and somewhat alarmness. My concern is that the, the police become, you know, reactionary or overreactionary uh, to the situation. And, and, and obviously when that happens, uh, you know, um, communities of color and, and poor communities uh, become, they, they take the brunt of, of, of that reaction. You know, with, with masking, I feel awkward wearing a mask in public, as most people do, but I feel particularly nervous when, you know, I'm walking through a building with a mask on because, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, that obviously, you know, it hasn't been done in the past, but there's been certain stereotypes that have always been pushed. And now we're, we're being asked to sort of, you know, do this for a reason. And it feels, you know, off-putting, but at the same time, it makes people of color feel threatened somewhat when you, you encounter a police. There was a police officer that walked through our building, uh, and I had my mask on, and I, I tipped my mask so that he could, you know, I just don't want him to have any kind of, you know, overreaction to me having a mask on. I bought a, a, a mask from a, a place that, uh, you know, I didn't want anybody to really, I didn't wear, I was not wearing a blue mask, I should say. And so I didn't want anybody to think that I wasn't where I was supposed to be, because that's obviously what what happens is that police officers, to some degree, they, you know, some of them, they believe that, you know, certain people aren't supposed to be in certain areas and they act upon those biases and that that leads to catastrophes at times. And so that's always a concern, particularly during this pandemic. You know, we had a person shot and killed in uh, Brunswick by two, but this wasn't by police officers, this was by people, individuals. Uh, essentially taking on the role of, of what they thought to be police and shooting somebody who was on a jog through their neighborhood. And so that, that's the type of stuff that, you know, that we worry about. And police officers themselves, you know, are sometimes, some of them are overreactionary as well. And that's a real concern of mine. It's always a real concern. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And I want to thank our listeners. If they want to get in touch with you to hear more about your work, and this goes to Andrew and to Jonathan, could you please let them know where they could find you? Andrew, I'll start with you. Sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Guthrie Ferguson. I'm a law professor. You can Google me and find you know, public emails and uh, feel free to reach out, especially if you're an aspiring law student. If you're thinking about going to law school at this time, there's some hard and interesting questions to make a decision on. I actually think it's probably a good time to go to law school. Uh, we've got three years till the recovery, so maybe uh, we want you might want to hang out in law school for a while. And I'm happy to answer questions. If you are a rising, you're already committed to going to law school, wherever you want to go, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to talk to you about some of the challenges and give you my advice and any help I can. And Jonathan, where have you hung your shingle? I hung my shingle in Largo, Maryland, in Prince George's County, right outside the district. I can be reached at the law office of Jonathan Newton. 
I've also put together a, a, a quick web page that we're going to be putting up some contact information, but it, essentially right on there, the phone number rings to the office. It's at lawoflawschool.com. It has a picture of the book on there and a link to Amazon to purchase. Uh, but I also offer, you know, avail myself to any potential law students, to, uh, people who want to go to law school or even considering it. I, I'd like to, I like to talk about that process of actually, you know, applying and, and, and getting yourself together and, and really, you know, picking uh, where you might make a good fit to go to law school and just talking to people about that. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, my email address is at uh, jnewton at jynlaw.com. And I'm, I'm pretty findable on the Internet. Just look up, you know, the law office of Jonathan Y. Newton. Again, I'm, I'm, this is a good time to consider going to law school. This is a very good time. We're at a change, a pivotal point in American history, obviously. And so this would be a good time for some of the people who said, this is what I'd like my country to look like in the future. The best way to do that is to get involved with the law and change some of the laws or at least uh, solidify some of the laws that you feel, help solidify some of the laws that you feel need to stay around. Well, thank you again to Jonathan Yusuf Newton and Andrew Guthrie Ferguson for coming on to talk about the law of law school, the essential guide for first year law students. I've been your host, Lee Rawls. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service and stay safe out there.